certainly good to be able to be here tonight. Already expressed in our prayer the, the powerful thanksgiving we have to the God of heaven who's permitted us with such blessing to gather as we have tonight. Speaking of matters such as that, you perhaps have already noted in the bulletin, as well as on the wall behind me, that we shall give consideration to our first lesson of this year with regard to questions and answers. That seems to be, again, a matter that is of some interest as we give thought to subjects that you select. As always, I never select my, these particular ones of my own choosing. I just do one of the other lessons of the month for, for, for matters along that line. But yet, you, by way of putting things in the box, or in some cases, handing it to me personally, those are the su subjects that have been selected, and tonight, we'll look at the first installment of this for the year of 2022. This opening slide is nothing but just a very simple introduction to the whole idea behind these questions and answers. As you're probably well aware, the Bible itself has many, many questions within it. But these are questions, at least in most cases, that you have selected, which are not directly word-for-word -word questions in the Bible. Tonight, we will be looking primarily at a, a set of texts, one of which is the one read for the book of Job. But the first question actually relates to the book of Psalms. And so the opening question of the night reads like this. Did David write all of the Psalms? If not, who did write them? And so we're interested in the book of Psalms. If you'd be turning to that book, we'll have a few things to say about the book of Psalms as we make ready with an effort to at least provide some guidance with respect to this question. I began by reminding you that it's often a useful thing to at least have in mind the author of a given book. And so when we happen to know that information, it can be helpful not only to historically place that given book, but also some of the life circumstances of the author can have a bearing on one's appreciation of some of that which he wrote. The book of Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. Not only that, at 150 chapters, it also contains the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. But aside from all of that, the author of the various 150 Psalms, David wrote many of them, but not all of them. In fact, if you go ahead and look at the ending verse of Psalm 72, we'll have at least a piece of information that can be somewhat at least informative. Psalm 72 ends like this. The author made the, made the following observation. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And so that immediately informs us that at least some of the Psalms were penned by David. Now, maybe we're not too surprised at that. After all, from 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 and 2, he was the sweet singer of Israel. David was a somewhat talented musician, and yet the book of Psalms is the songbook of the ancient Jews, and thus, perhaps, his contribution to it would not be that surprising. But I might invite you to also notice that many of the superscriptions, we've often noted they themselves apparently are not inspired but many of them do have a strong historical undercurrent. And in some cases, they actually do seem to relate strongly to the features that are being described. And yet certain of the Psalms, such as Psalm 86, Psalm 101, Psalm 108, and Psalm 103, they are in the superscription are attributed to David. Now let's go beyond that though. For I mentioned some of the Psalms appear to have been written by someone else. 
If you look down near the bottom of that slide, Psalm number 90, amazingly enough, appears to have been written by Moses. Now that by itself is pretty shocking to think that the ancient man Moses, the one who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, it would appear that he also wrote the 90th Psalm. And that psalm, you see, has in it some of the most well-known thoughts in the entire book of Psalms. That's the very psalm that points out the length of one's life, 70 years, or maybe, if by reason of strength, fourscore years. Well, if Moses wrote that, that would, have been, that would have been due to him. But not only that, look later in the psalm at verse number 12. Teach us to number our days. A somewhat interesting observation, and wouldn't that be appropriately noted if, in fact, Moses wrote that psalm? But let's go even beyond that. Several of the other psalms, it appears Solomon wrote them. Psalm 72, as well as Psalm 127, they appear to have been written by Solomon. Now, the next three names on that list are perhaps quite a bit more unfamiliar unfamiliar along this line. Have you ever heard of Heman and Asaph and Ethan? Maybe not. And yet there are certain of the Psalms that appear to be attributed to them, such as Psalm 50, Psalm 88, Psalm 78 through 83. All of them, in fact, are attributed to those individuals, and so is Psalm 89. At this point, there's an interesting placement, though, of those names otherwise. It's in 1 Chronicles 15. In that verse, all three of those people are also mentioned, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan. And they are said to be hand-selected singers appointed by David. So putting all that together, it appears that they may well have contributed to the book of Psalms by at least putting together some of these other psalms that I've just mentioned for your consideration. I suppose, going back to the question, it was asked, did David write all of them? Apparently not. He did write the vast majority of them. And so when you and I make reference to the authorship of the psalms, we'll have to be a bit more cautious to make sure we don't attribute some to David that were actually written perhaps by someone else. Let's move to the second question. The only other matter of issue that I invited you to consider on the slide was about midway through it. I did invite you to note in the New Testament, there are several passages that attribute many of the features of Psalms to David. So we're not out of course to do the same, just recognizing he did not write all of them. What about the second question? The second question in fact, takes us to the book of Job. Now, if you would like to do so, you may want to go ahead and turn to Job chapter 1 for all of the remaining questions tonight will come from the first chapter of the book of Job. The book of Job is perhaps one of the most intriguing books in all the Old Testament. It is a rather fascinating book. I thought that what it might do well for us to do is let me read at least much of, the, of chapter number 1 so that you will gain a feeling for the questions that, that someone has asked. At this point, we have six questions left to go, and all of them are out of Job chapter 1. So let me read through this chapter, at least in the majority, so that when we do arrive at the questions, you'll have an understanding for the placement and the nature of the question. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. 
And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep and three thousand camels and five hundred yoke of oxen and five hundred she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou, hast not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands, and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. When it rains, it pours. Four messages he received in that chapter, and you may notice that when three, while three of the gentlemen, or at least the messengers, were still speaking, yet another would arrive and bring some other piece of tragedy. 
the person who has asked these questions pointed our attention to some very interesting matters of this opening chapter in Job. And the first question reads like this. In verse 6, why did the angels present themselves before the Lord? Now to revisit verse 6, the question had said, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now, our person who has asked the question pointed us to the fact of angels in this verse. So on the slide, I've asked you to step through a few observations with me. And let's begin it like this. The word angel does not appear in verse 6. The person who wrote the question asserted it, but the word angels does not appear in verse 6. In fact, it doesn't appear anywhere in the chapter. And therefore, that's going to be at least a bedrock for some of the observations I'm going to ask you to make. There is no indication that the phrase sons of God refers to angels. That's the observation, and perhaps that would be one matter to come to mind. But we're going to at least offer this thought, and so the next point on the slide, can you think with me? about the places in the Word of God in which the phrase sons of God does appear and who it refers to in those cases. I believe if you will readily consider it with me, you'll note the fact it's usually not angels. In fact, rarely is that phrase used to refer to angels. But let's go to Genesis 6 verse 2. When that phrase first appears there, who is under discussion? When the sons of God married the daughters of men. Now you and I know angels, Jesus Himself said, they don't marry and they aren't given in marriage. Matthew chapter 11. And yet there, sons of God are marrying the daughters of men. Clearly that's not referring to angels. What it refers to there are the godly men on earth, the descendants, if you please, of Seth. Well, what about that text in John 1 verse 12 as we go to the New Testament? Who there are the sons of God? The inspired writer John pointed out for us at that location. He says that all of those who believe on the Lord are reckoned as sons of God. So there, those who are the called the sons of God are described as those who believe on the Lord. In other words, it's human beings. Let's try another one. In Romans 8, verse 14, when there the discussion is presented to us, it directly says from the pen of Paul, whoever is led by the Spirit of God is the Son of God. And again, he's referring to members of the congregation at Rome. He isn't talking about angels. Well, let's try another one. In Philippians 2, 15, for the benefit of each of us, Aren't we thus encouraged there to live lives that are blameless and harmless as the sons of God, before whom you shine as lights, listen, in the world? He isn't talking about angels. Godly people are called the sons of God. Now, I realize Jesus was His Son in a different way than we are. But nonetheless, we are blessedly called the sons of God in a host of passages. Perhaps the last one is this one, 1 John 3, verse 1. We are reminded there that as the sons of God, we shall be like Him. Now, we currently live on earth, but come the day of judgment, we shall be like Him in the realms beyond this one. I use all those verses, and many others might well be added, 
to point out to us that the phrase sons of God in Job chapter 1 verse 6 does not mean angels. It has a reference, you see, to those godly people on earth. Now with that in mind, that gives us an entire new perception likely to some of the features that are taking place in Job chapter 1. But with that in mind, perhaps one more thing. The question had specifically asked, why did the angels present themselves before the Lord? So now we've learned that apparently it wasn't angels at all. But what were these godly people doing presenting themselves before the Lord? Well, at the bottom of the slide, I've asked you to appreciate this. What is it that immediately preceded this? What was the context? We might recall verses 4 and 5, the context had been Job's children. They were gathering for a period of honoring and offering to God, and Job himself was officiating over at least some matter of presentation on their behalf before God. Now all of that leads me to draw two additional conclusions. One of which is, you and I know somewhat about the time frame of the offerings to God in the Old Testament. There were offerings beneath the law of Moses, but all of those had to be offered by a priest, according to Leviticus chapters 8 and 9. You and I might now wonder, was the setting of the book of Job sometime in the days of the law of Moses, or was it prior to that? It seems to me the evidence is rather overwhelming. It must have been prior to that. Because you'll notice in Job chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where were these offerings made? There was no indication it was at the tabernacle. There was no indication that Job himself was a priest under the Levitical priesthood. No indication at all of this. That would again seemingly suggest that Job himself was the patriarch of a family, perhaps in the days of Abraham, or in the days of Isaac, or in the days of Jacob, some would be quick to say then that the book of Job may well be the single oldest book in the Bible. Perhaps for another lesson in time, there appears to be perhaps a reference in Genesis 10 to some of the events and persons that you and I are going to read about tonight in Job 1. Otherwise, one final thing. If these, if these sons of God refer to human beings who again are godly, then in what way were they presenting themselves? What was going on that would be called a presentation to God? There's a sense in which you and I are always before the all-seeing eye of God. He knows us. He witnesses us. He watches what we do and say. Doesn't Proverbs 15.3 remind us, "...the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good." But yet there is an activity in which we directly come before the very presence of God and it's worship. Could it be that the description of presenting themselves before the Lord is a description of the activities of worship of Job and his children? Now I'll offer the thought that if that be true, that does seemingly at least harmonize with much of what we're about to see otherwise in the first two chapters but at the very least, that challenges us today, doesn't it? To remind ourselves that as sons of God, we too present ourselves before God every time we come together for worship. And the New Testament frequently points that matter out to us. But with that, let's look at question two. 
Why did Satan come with them? And was he presenting himself before the Lord for a specific purpose? Now you may notice that directly is taken from verses 6 and 7. And so some additional thoughts that will give consideration to that, I've asked for you to consider on the slide as well. The wording again in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. One additional thought. If our earlier observation was on target, in light of the sons of God not being angels, then that means the scene of these matters need not be perceived as heaven. I think in the most cases, from an early age when we read the book of Job, we perhaps begin to immediately suppose, well, if they're presented before the Lord, it the Lord in heaven? So in this scene entirely in heaven? No, it's not. Remember, Satan was cast out of heaven, Revelation 12. Therefore, to suppose that he has access to the throne of God is beyond one's imagination. Surely that can't be. And in other verses, we're told that such cannot be. God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Psalm 5 verse 4, Habakkuk 1 verse 13. Surely Satan is not one who has immediate access to the throne of God, but the sons of God do. Those who are holy do. Those who are righteous do. How often are we reminded that our prayers encircle the very throne of God? Revelation 8 verse 5. Revelation 5 verse 8. And so it is. Then that I would suggest we need not suppose that the sons of God were angels, nor should we suppose that the scene of these matters is heaven. But with all of that, this next question is certainly a very good one. What was Satan doing? The text says, Satan came also among them. If our earlier observation was right, that it had something to do with worship and the worship that Job and his children were offering, is that not a powerful reminder and an innocent appreciation that at each and every worship period, when you and I are offering our worship to God, there is an agent who is also striving to make our worship less than what it should be, presenting himself, and I'm talking about the devil, trying to contaminate worship, trying to make it profane, and trying to make it less than what the Lord would demand that it in fact be. Notice here he was trying. May I suggest he's still trying today. And that's why worship must be done with such an intent and such a determination and such a conviction in light of texts such as John 4, 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him hear it, must. If you profane worship, you've ruined it. If you destroy it in any way, which can happen by profanity or contamination, or otherwise offering what He has not authorized, Satan has won, and that worship has ceased to be anything but vain. Matthew 15, verses 8, verses 8 and 9. So here we seemingly have an impression that the devil was appearing also in an effort to bring that worship that Job and his children were offering to a matter of profanity. Now you'll notice on the slide, the effort to corrupt worship, it seems, has always been a matter of intrigue for the devil. Would you go back as far 
as Cain and Abel. The first record we have in all the Bible of a direct offering to God. And we remember that Abel's was pleasing unto God, but Cain's wasn't. Genesis chapter 4, why wasn't it? What went wrong? Could we not summarize it like this? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And yet Hebrews 11.4 says that Abel offered by faith. That means he did what God said ought to be done. Cain didn't. Cain didn't. He didn't offer the extent of what God said, and he didn't offer it the way that God said. And that by itself thus led one to appreciate that his offering was unsatisfactory, it was not adequate. And in verses 6-8, through eight, God even told Cain, Sin lieth at the door. Maybe it is in that connection we have here a, a, a portrait. Worship is serious business. It always has been. It always will be. We cannot take it lightly. Every single time, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every time when there is a directed matter of worship, Satan is standing at the door hopeful and ready to bring that worship to a matter of corruption and soul. That's the reason Satan was appearing. Now you'll notice the last comment I would invite you to notice from 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4, is the statement having to do with the simplicity that's in Christ and the serpent's desire to corrupt it. Now that has not only to do with the Word of God, but it has to do as well with those things you and I specifically offer to God. The lesson that we considered on Isaiah, which by the way, due to the weather and other things, we haven't been able to continue that series, but with the blessing of God, we shall soon. But one of the things we saw in chapter 1, hadn't the children of Israel's worship become vain? No doubt a big part of that was the propagation and the efforts of none other than the adversary mentioned here. What about question number 3? Was presenting before the Lord something done often or routinely? Job 2 verse 1 indicates a second instance of presenting before the Lord. The person has made a wonderful observation. When it says in Job 1 verse 6 that they presented themselves, these sons of God did, is that something that happened just this once? Did it happen rarely? Or did it happen rather frequently? Chapter 2, verse 1 goes on to say, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. So this seems like a duplication of what we just read in chapter 1. I would suggest to you, if our observation is right, if it's connected in some way to the offering of godly people with regard to worship, it not only happens often, it happens every single time the saints come together to worship. Now, that again, I would suggest, highlights in us a reminder that though Job was worshiping beneath this patriarchal era in time, and our worship today is beneath the Christian era, the principle of the devil attempting to bring an error into worship or a corruption or profanity into it, that is something that still happens. The worship of God is that fundamental. How about the next question? The person went on to ask, in verse 7, the Lord is all-knowing. 
so he would have known where Satan had been. Was this a rhetorical question? Note again verse 7 with me. The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? The persons ask a great question. Didn't God know where Satan had been? Of course he knew. The Word of God is filled with rhetorical questions. And by that I mean there's so many instances in which you and I know that God knew the answer to the question He was asking. He wasn't asking it for His benefit. He was asking it for the benefit of those to whom He had asked it. Didn't all of that begin in some ways in the Garden of Eden? After Adam and Eve had partaken of the forbidden fruit, and God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and He said, Adam, where art thou? Well, didn't God know where He was? And then he asked, Have you partaken of the fruit which I commanded you not to partake of? Well, of course he knew it. God knew the answers to both questions. Why did he ask it then? He asked it for Adam's benefit. You need to ponder what it is you've done. I am now here, and you have to face me in light of what you have done, and you have partaken of that which you were forbidden to partake of. And all throughout the Bible, on so many instances... Questions much like that are asked. Again, God knows the answer already. The question's asked, so the person who it asks of will reflect and think with care about it. The next question is this one. If Satan had been walking up and down in the earth, what form would he have taken to do this? Now that takes us to the next slide. And so with it, would you at least appreciate the following? Verse number 7, the reply was given. From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Now, if that was the response that the devil gave, the question's a very good one. So if he was walking up and down in the earth, well, what form did he have? Could people see him? I'm sure all of us will remember, and we've often appreciated, that there's a depiction of the devil as this red-looking figure with a long pointy tail carrying a pitchfork. And he has the aura of evil all about him. But all of us recognize that the devil doesn't walk around that way. I mean, if he did, everybody would be able to see him and avoid him. And everybody would know directly that he's up to no good. Of course he doesn't parade around that way. In fact, the devil's a spirit being. In that sense, he doesn't occupy this physical form directly that you and I do. Now, it was true in that first century era, he could, unclean spirits could inhabit people. But now that power has been taken away from him. He can't do that anymore. The Bible reminds us that that power was only for a limited time and it is no longer available to him. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have access to this earth. We know that on a daily basis, or at least frequently, he is busy and active, placing temptations before you and me, striving to turn our attention from what is noble and right and good and godly and to perceive things as they really are not or to fail to perceive, perceive things as they really are. At the very least, when you and I give thought to the way in which He is active, He is active in that means of temptation, and on the slide, I've asked you to appreciate this. 
I worded it as follows. It's, a, it's the middle point on that slide. Satan has a desire as the archenemy of God to do that which is most hurtful to God. To do that which is most damaging to what is the will of heaven. Now may I ask this, what was God's prized creation? Of all the things He made, what was the only thing made in His image? Mankind, you and me. Genesis 1.26 And so you'll notice that the devil turns his attention directly to crushing or harming the prized creation of God, mankind. The way in which he does that is to lead them to a position of eternal destruction. Now, before us, you'll notice, the way in which the devil parades about and does these things on a daily basis is not by appearing in a red suit, but he does it with these assertions in heart and mind, placing temptations before you and me, and may I say, with regard to worship, he presents himself today the same way he did in the day of Job. Now, their worship took a different form than ours. They offered sacrifices, whereas Jesus offered ours. But you know as well as I do that our connection in worship is as demanded of us as it was of them. Mental engagement, participating in what's authorized, and never going beyond it, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. So He appears in the same form today that He did then. Now, maybe in that light, we come to yet another question. Do we know the purpose of Satan walking upon the earth during this time? In many ways, I've just highlighted that again. His purpose, as portrayed here, is very much the same as it was portrayed in Zechariah chapter 3. If you'd like to turn over to that chapter, all we'll need to do is read the opening verse or two. But it makes a rather powerful presentation of the idea, the goal, if you will, the motivation of the devil. Zechariah chapter 3. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing in his right hand to resist him. Here was Satan resisting what the will of God was. And the Lord said unto Satan, verse 2, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? May I remind us, there was a strong resistance taking place. The forces of good upheld by the high priest Joshua. And yet, at his disposal was also the one to resist him. The mentality, the appreciation to lead that high priest to do what was not right. And yet as Satan was challenged, you'll notice that it again was a matter of resisting the will of God, the specialness of Jerusalem, and the nature of the sacrifices taking place at that place. All of that brings us again to the New Testament era today. When we assemble for worship as we have done today and are at the moment. Special times of power, majesty. We are appearing before the God of heaven, and so each of us need to appreciate that our songs and our prayers and our engagement in the other acts of service 
are done in such a way that Satan does not gain the upper hand and bring about in us any corruption with respect to that object of pure and right worship. All the questions that, at least of recent character, then have touched Job chapter 1, though the questions did not touch some of the latter parts of Job chapter 1, could I remind us that these issues that befell Job followed this observation. God took the observation and mentioned this to, to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? God was aware of the faithfulness of Job. He was aware of the integrity of his life and heart. And it was he who mentioned to Satan, Don't you recognize and can't you see the perfection and the integrity and the faithfulness of my servant Job? It's at that point that Satan questioned the faith of Job. You realize, God, he doesn't serve you out of a pure heart. He only serves you because you've blessed him so much. You put a hedge about him. Tell you what, if you'll take that stuff away, he'll curse you to your face. And at that point in verse number 12, God gave, Joe, gave the devil the permission. You can't take his life, but you can touch the other things he has. It's at that point the darkness of verses 13 and following happened. One by one, these messengers come and tell about the camels and the sheep and the oxen, and even your children are gone. And so it would appear that in a matter of minutes, he got these respective messengers and all these things were taken away. But would you be impressed with the closing verse of the chapter? In all of this, Job sinned not. He didn't sin nor did he charge God foolishly. At the outset of the lesson, I use the phrase, when it rains, it pours. And I know we've all heard that, maybe even used it ourselves. When bad news started coming to Job in regard to the Sabaeans, one by one the bad news continued coming. How easy by the time you got the second messenger... Or by the time you receive the message of the third one, how easy would it be by then to almost be crushed beneath the element of despair and to begin to lift up your voice unto God and to beg, why'd you let this happen? In fact, in the very next chapter, Job's wife is going to do it. Talk about being alone. We surely couldn't commend his wife on this occasion. She even urged him to curse God and die. And yet, Job didn't sin. There are many reasons that you and I can take comfort and benefit from the book of Job, and one of them is even in the midst of bad news, even in the midst of tragedy, we can be faithful, just like he was. Even in the midst of otherwise horrendous things that go on about us, we can be faithful. Job was. Throughout this book, there are many discussions that take place, and he'll have some friends that are going to come shortly to him in the closing verse of Job chapter 2, and they are going to at least be there to try and comfort him. They didn't always succeed at that. Sometimes they questioned his faith more than anything, and sometimes they questioned his deeds and his integrity more than anything. But through it all, Job defended the God of heaven, and he was so thankful to have a mediator. You and I have an even better one. 
tonight as we close this particular lesson, having looked at these questions, may I say to you, you already have some more questions ready for the next one of these sessions. But if you have additional questions or things you'd like to offer, please don't hesitate to do that so that we could perhaps make use of them when we arrive at our third installment tonight. What a blessing the book of Job is and what a blessing the book of Psalms is. And we have had some opportunity tonight to reflect upon both of them. This evening, if there's anyone in this assembly that would wish to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd be delighted to do that which the Lord would authorize us to do as a wayward child of God to make observation of your acknowledgement concerning repentance and confession and to pray, in fact, in light of those things. If you would wish to become a Christian, that too is set forth in the Word of God, and we aren't left to our own devices. You're commanded to believe in the Lord, to repent of your sins, to confess His name, and to be baptized. Tonight, we'd love to help you. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. Song number 50 has been announced, and if we could be of help to you at this time, won't you come? All together we stand and while we sing.